working for Crusoe, Sam Park, John Ramey. We will talk about interest rates. We'll talk about China and Russia. Let's start with interest rates. Sam, you and I, after we concluded the last episode, spoke off air. We might have touched on this on air. Um, Annie Lowry's piece about Silicon Valley Bank and why we should all be outraged in the Atlantic mentioned that the chief risk officer position had been open for months. At Eight Silicon- months, I believe it was. Yes. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank. And you wisely emailed me after the episode because we didn't touch too much on that specifically. You said, bear in mind, it may have been impossible or very difficult for them to fill that position with a qualified candidate given their risk profile. And that's totally in play, right? If you're somebody who can be the chief risk officer of a bank and you take a look as part of the interview process at what's going on, you might think, I want no part of that. So that probably or at least plausibly played a role in the extended um, lack of a chief risk officer at that particular bank. Yeah, the ongoing is, vacancy. Yeah. I mean, what do they They can't just close up shop because they don't have a, 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 because they have a job vacancy. However, Megan McArdle of the Washington Post wrote uh, an article earlier this week that I sent to you. Yes. And the headline is. So you're surprised by interest rate hikes, question mark, really, question mark. So I was pleased to see that the outrage is still continuing, even with the acknowledgement that there may have been some like. Well, I, I think the, the outrage is factors. justified. It's just that, that uh, I don't think we should be casting about for. Uh, I mean, the, the, the fact is, it's sort of like murder on the Orient Express, right? They all killed him. Right. Uh, and and. There's no need to get in the HR weeds about this. No, no, I don't think so. Right? I mean, yeah. what, it's like I say, what are they supposed to do? Just get, you go out of business because they've got a job vacancy? That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and uh, for instance, but while we're on this subject, we spent a lot of time last week, you know, sort of declaiming the venture capital industry and and things like of that nature, and that's entirely appropriate. I, I wouldn't uh, take back any of that, but we didn't. Uh, go into a lot of discussion about the Federal Reserve, which is what we're supposed to be talking about now, right? The, the interest rate decisions. And I, there were many people back in 2021 who were saying that the Fed should be have a closer eye on inflation and be more alarmed about inflation, and that perhaps they should have raised interest rates earlier uh, and more slowly. And that I, you know, that I find somewhat persuasive, only up to a point, however, because the fact the, is... Just to encapsulate that, that argument, that essentially means boil the frog more slowly. Yes. Well, I, I mean, the, I, I don't, you know, boiling the frog, it, it's sort of getting ready for a catastrophe. That that I don't think that's appropriate, okay. right? I mean, uh, uh, but I don't want to overstate this case because... Today, the interest, the Fed has already been raising interest rates for a year, right? They've, they, so, you know, the financial industry has had a year to get used to this idea. So the idea that that the Fed has been raising interest rates so fast, I mean, it is, it's quicker than they might have done it. But it, again, it's been a year. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, we don't want to, Say it's it's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. It's the bank's fault. It's venture capital's fault. It's the Fed's fault. It's everybody's fault. It's systemic. Right? Uh, yeah. Um, 
And but for instance, on Wednesday, Chairman Powell did his press conference, which is what the Fed chair does after every federal open market committee meeting. And he did two things, which is what the Fed chair always does in that case. First, he publicly announced the decision of the Fed to raise interest rates by a quarter point. In some other cases, they will say, we're not going to raise interest rates or we're going to cut them or whatever. But at the end of every federal open market committee meeting, the chair stands up and tells you what that meeting's decision was on interest rates. So Powell did that. The other thing he did, which is what, again, what the chair always does in this case, is to provide what they call forward guidance, uh, in which he explains what the Fed believes future economic conditions will indicate for future interest rate policy. And on Wednesday, that was seemed to me essentially neutral, right? They, they're not quite certain what the next interest rate decisions will be. Chair Powell said, for example, that the recent turmoil in the banking industry will probably tighten credit conditions, right? So that by itself will have some disinflationary impact. Without moving an interest rate. Yeah, that's right. So, but also this week, uh, 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 job weekly jobless claims came in lower than expected again. So I don't think we have any real idea of what the future interest rate policy is going to be. And then that's basically what Powell said. He's going to, we're going to have to wait and see. As a matter of fact, on their schedule, the Fed doesn't have a meeting next month. The open market committee meeting, the open market committee does not have a meeting next month. They won't have one until May. So there will be some time before there will be any movement on interest rates from the Fed. So we'll see what happens at that point. And I don't think, uh, you know, we, we have no real way of knowing. But I bring this up because even if in 2021, the Fed did the right thing about how they rose, how they raised interest rates. We can debate whether they did or not, but if, if that was the right interest rate policy at the time, I do believe that they should have had more aggressive forward guidance at that time. As you will recall, all through 2021, the Fed was saying, we expect inflation to be transitory. And they said that over and over again, transitory. And I think that was the mistake, not so much the raising or lowering of interest rates, but just saying that they didn't think inflation was going to be a problem. I don't think they had a very good basis for that. Uh, they, I remember saying to you at, towards the end of 2021, somebody has to explain to me how supply chain issues are going to get worked out quickly because I can't imagine that happening. And I, I would, I think probably would have been better if the Fed had said something like, we're coming out of a once in a century pandemic that disrupted supply chains that were both longer and much more complex by orders of magnitude than they've ever been before in history. We can't actually know how that, how supply chains are going to reconstitute themselves. For instance, the Fed couldn't have known that China was going to continue with a zero COVID policy. And that was going to 
ensure that there, there will be ongoing problems with supply chains. Mind you, that works on an inflation both ways, right? It disrupts supply chains if Chinese factories can't operate, but it also loyal, lowers energy prices because Chinese factories can't operate and Chinese people can't go, you know, travel around the country or whatever, you know, and dude, so... Demand they, severely impacted. Yeah, but they had no playbook for dealing with something like this, and they shouldn't have thought they did have a playbook. Uh, and now, mind you, not just the Fed, but anybody in an authoritative position sort of feels like they want to be able to make authoritative statements, right? They don't want to just sit there and go, oh, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, they, they have to say something. But Sam, I, no different to how I will be in a couple hours watching a baseball game and broadcasting it, one. Like, well, yeah. yeah, except that the stakes are considerably higher. Right, but I don't that. necessarily know what's going to happen. Right, and uh, but you have you have a much better idea. Of well, what's it's a simpler it's than, a simpler system. Yeah, by far. Right, that's exactly the point I'm making. Yeah. And while we're on the subject, John, I mean, uh, there are many cases I think where understanding sports can help you understand other phenomena. The global financial markets are not one of them. Well, I mean, I think that (laughs) that number is pretty limited. Uh, And in some cases, uh, having an understanding of sports and looking looking at things through the lens of sports might actually impoverish impoverish your understanding of non-sports phenomena. So we'll see what happens with interest rates going forward. But that's the big question. Right. Is what will the Fed do in May? I think when, you know, the quarter point raise this week was widely anticipated. Uh, and, you know, that was basically priced in by investors by the end of last week. So uh, that wasn't any sort of surprise whatsoever. It, the, the, the question will be what will happen going forward? We'll just we're just going to have to see. I don't think we. And But one thing I would like to say is that. While I don't think this is anything at all, like 2008, uh, in 2008, we touched last week, we touched on Bear Stearns very just sort of glancingly, right? Uh, but that was the first, uh, the sort of opening round of what ended up being a global financial crisis. Bear Stearns collapsed in March of 2008, and it wasn't until six months later to the day, I think, that Lehman Brothers collapsed. And in between those two events, it, you know, people sort of felt like maybe this could be contained. And I just want to emphasize that it was six months before it actually exploded into a global crisis. Again, I don't think that's going to happen this time, but uh, we shouldn't uh, consider that we're out of the woods yet. That's all. In fact, when you read about the financial crisis of 2008, depending on who you read, it is <laughs> referred to as the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, because the, you know there were really obvious warning signs, uh, very large banks taking enormous losses uh, at, by the end of 2007. I, that's, I remember looking, looking at that and going, this is bad. Right. Uh, right. But neither you nor I really thought this was a global financial panic until the fall of 08. No, I mean, and there was no, you know, uh, as layman, there's no real reason we should have. The Fed meets eight times a year. So there okay. are ostensibly eight times these things can move. 
but I feel, uh, but again, it's not in the Constitution. I'm sure they could call an emergency meeting if they oh, had Oh, of to. course. Yeah, that's right. If, if they thought they needed to, yes, I'm sure they would. So the real question is, and again, I'll go back to the McArdle article, who on earth in the banking sector could be surprised by any of this at this point, especially when you contextualize it with over a decade of quantitative easing, right? It, it almost, I mean, hindsight is 2020 as the cliche goes, but now it seems inevitable. And also when you think about various inflationary um, phenomena that existed outside of the consumer market, right? Like Bitcoin or various stocks, you realize there's actually been inflation in the system for quite some time. It was just asset inflation. Yes. And then that happens. But that's not I mean, those are inflated asset prices. Right. But that's, that's not, not really the Fed's problem. Well, yeah, and that's not inflate. That's not consumer inflation uh, necessarily in in uh, in the way the Fed defines it. No, but it does mean there's a lot of extra money sloshing around. And now, again, with hindsight, it does track narratively. Well, and it need not have necessarily been hindsight either. For instance, the <laughs> Fed knew that they'd been pumping enormous amounts of money for 20 years into the system. And as we were discussing last week, that created an entire culture of uh, and standard practice in the financial sector uh, to operate inside of a low interest rate environment in, in which whole business models of investing depended upon there being low interest rates. And the Fed should have understood that, right? In, in other words, uh, like this, the very old sort of formulation about how the Fed operates is that it's their job to take the punch bowl away if when the party starts to get or, you know, before the party starts to get out of hand. And that, you know, people have been saying that for many, many, many years. Uh, but I would say that the level of uh, money that they've been pumping into the system just blows the whole punch bowl analogy out of the water and it's oh no really it's a something... multiple kegger it, well yeah it's really something much more uh like the opioid crisis right right where you've got all these junkies right these sort of easy money junkies operating uh you know financial firms right? and if uh, one and if you and if one supply dries up you can find another yeah i just think you know i hope that 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 we're going to get rid of this punch bowl idea sure. right that, that's just not appropriate anymore. all right just so i'm keeping score no more sports metaphors and the punch bowl metaphor is also outdated you well, would prefer that an update, one, yeah. to, I mean, I'm update not saying, to the opioid crisis i'm not saying no more sports metaphors i am saying right that just you know be judicious yeah you know is, is it really you know is that really the 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 appropriate one right? here's it the one here's the weekend headline writer fed continues to keep eye on the ball with inflation Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, but I, you mentioned um, you mentioned it need not be hindsight, and you know the the free money is at the center of all these business models, right? right. Um, I've got a great idea that's going to completely disrupt sector X. Let's say the taxi sector, right? Let's say it's a rideshare technology. I don't care if it never turns a profit or if it fails to turn a profit for a long, long time because I can essentially get free money and another round of investors and we can just eventually take over the marketplace, whether it's profitable or not. That's, that's, right. in, yeah. that's insane. And that's also exactly what's been happening. 
Yes, that is that's and now, very much what's going to happen. And now the bills come due and people are realizing, oh, my gosh, we actually, the, the rules, the laws of physics or, you know, basic free market physics still apply. Um, but I wanted to touch on something. You couldn't get away with, or let me frame it this way. Why hasn't quantitative easing in the United States turned the United States into um, Argentina or the Weimar Republic or any other runaway inflationary cautionary tale? And I know the answer to this, but I want to hear, I think I know the answer to this. I want to hear why you think that's the case. Well, I mean, I I don't strictly know. I would guess that it has a lot to do with the dollar being the the world's reserve currency. That's exactly what I was getting at. Right. Is that you're always going to, in other words, when the Fed does quantitative easing, it buys a lot of treasuries and other securities, but mainly treasury securities. Uh, But then it resells them into the market later. And there's always going to be a market, they believe, for treasuries, right? Uh, As opposed to Argentinian government debt, right? Which has been defaulted on over and over and over again. Uh, And uh, so- But it's almost unthinkable in the history of kind of modern economics until this has happened, the kind of policies we've seen from the United States Central Bank, the Fed. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're op- that's why, you know, we can't always look at past events and, you know, sort of see easy comparisons. Right. Uh, but the problem is that's all we have to, you know, economics is a science of past outcomes. Right. Uh, Data it driven. Ought to, it ought to be. Right. Uh and uh, it's all in a, an evolving field in which new information comes up all the time that's different qualitatively from the kind of information that people used to get. And, you know, economists adjust their opinions all the time. Uh, it, in, and they hope that they don't have to do it very drastically. And also, as you mentioned, the circuitry is just universe is different than it yeah, was the last very, inflationary crisis. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, you know, so we're just going to have to see how things work. You know, I think that a lot of people at the Fed are scratching their heads. It's like, why isn't this working better, right? Uh, but we're going to have to see how it all works out. Uh, just before we move to, to Russia and China, I just use the term inflationary crisis. Is that hyperbolic? Are you and I prepared to call this an inflationary crisis? I'm not. Am I, I just I'm parroting? Prepared, right. I mean, right. Uh, okay. So uh, an inflationary it's Period. nothing compared to what you know. The inflation is not in double digits, which, by the way, it is in Europe, sure. right? Uh, uh, it's nothing compared to what it was in the seventies. Okay. Uh, and, so, what what should we be calling this inflationary concern? I I, I don't know. Uh, uh, pro- I would say it's a problem. It's a mm. problem. Inflation is an ongoing problem in our economy. I wouldn't call it a crisis, okay. right? Uh, but uh, you know that. But it does hurt people. Right. Yeah, it, just as alternative media, we are not beholden to you know race to the front of the hyperbole. No, and I think we ought not be. I think that's yeah. one of the biggest problems, right? I agree. That, you, know, uh, you know, people are, uh, but we've there's so, been so many actual crises that have been occurring in our society lately that we're you know we're we're always looking for another one, right? I mean, we we want to want to think that, for instance, that whole opioid crisis. Uh, metaphor that I employed earlier. A real right? crisis. Yeah. And, and uh, but I think that uh, 
there's an addiction to opioids. There's an addiction to cheap money. There's an addiction to social media, right? There's so many uh, uh, aspects of our society where we could apply that metaphor, but that means we should actually be more careful, right? And we don't want to be looking for addiction everywhere, right? Uh, because you will find it, right? Gambling, for instance, right? Now sports is all just about gambling and everybody's somehow fine with that, right? Uh, God, and, that's another episode. Yeah, uh, but- that's not, you know, uh, uh, and so we again, there's a lot of addiction, but that doesn't mean that everything is addiction. Shall we pivot to Russia and China? Sure. Okay. As I texted you during the week, Russia and China having a summit, which you pointed out, three days, uh, President Xi visiting President Putin, and, you know, I know enough about history to be concerned about alliances, but two things have calmed me down. One, it's not a secret alliance. Well, one, it's not really an alliance, right? It's not a, a military treaty alliance right. in the sense that NATO is. Well, what does the right. T in NATO stand for? Right, treaty. Yes, right. And so uh, as much as Xi and Putin go on about, you know, their rock-solid friendship, you know, for it, you know, uh, uh, which is real, right? Don't misunderstand me, right? But no, but she has built in trademark flexibility. Well, I don't know if, if he's if he's built it in. It's just that they've never had a treaty. Sure. Okay, there's been plenty of problems between Russia and China for quite sure. a long time. And I would say I'd be very surprised if she w went treaty with that relationship because it, he seems to be uh, he seems to be ensuring China's flexibility. Um kind of as his trademark in this transactional diplomatic paradigm. I read leaders in The Economist, and they talked about Xi's transactional diplomatic paradigm. Okay. I, I mean, I think that's, I think he's trying to build in that flexibility. There's, yeah. you know, uh, and of course he is, you know, why wouldn't you? Right. Uh, but. And Putin's kind of over a barrel. He'll take any friend he can get. Yes. Um. There's a problem, though, right? For instance, almost every commentator that I've read and or seen talking about this meeting uh, said, well, this cements uh, Russia's status as the junior partner in this, uh, you know, not alliance, but in this relationship, right? And I think that's true. And I've actually thought that was true since at least uh, the Crimea incident of 2014, right? Is that, you know, China is really the one... Uh, hegemonic you know, economic power. Yeah, and, and, and Russia is, you know, sort of their, their goon squad, right? Which is, you know, a, an overstatement, but... Uh, and, and again, I think that's an accurate assessment. China certainly is the senior partner. But in that case... It really, I would have, I think we would have to say that this week, and not just this week, but especially this week, uh, Xi seemed or literally did go out of his way to elevate Putin. Uh, in other words, if China's the patron and Russia is the supplicant, then why did Xi go to him, right? Uh, why wouldn't you make the junior partner, the supplicant, come to you, 
right? But that's not what happened. Xi went to Moscow for three days. Not that's one, long not for two, a summit. But three. Uh, now, uh, he didn't know that the International Criminal Court was going to indict uh, Putin right before he went, right? He couldn't have known that was going to happen. Uh, and it's not like he can cancel the the event just because that happened. And he didn't know that Putin would spend the weekend in, you know, in part in Mariupol, right. uh, uh, which is, in fact, one of the main places where the war, war crimes, crimes in question took place, right? And, in fact, you know, uh, I think went to a school or something, right? It's just like, you know, the, the idea of him kidnapping children was not something he seemed to shy away from, right? So it's not just that that Putin is an indicted war criminal, but he seemed to actually be waving a war criminal flag right before uh, Xi comes to visit him. He didn't have to do that, right? Uh, and Because he knew that Xi can't, can't, can't cancel the trip, right? So uh, you might think that at some point, Xi Jinping would just be like, you are embarrassing me, right? Uh, and not for the first time, right? Right before the war started, uh, there was the entire Russian doping scandal at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, right? At which point, uh, Xi and Putin were standing shoulder to shoulder then saying how great, you know, what great friends they were. And the next thing that happens is there's this major doping scandal. Now, I don't think China cares about doping in, you know, in sports any more than anybody else does, by the way. Right. Because apparently nobody cares. Uh, you know, the Russians have been doing this for years and yet they're somehow still allowed to be in the Olympics uh, on some level, even if it's not official. Right. I mean, there's it's just a joke. Right. Uh, but that's a digression. Right. Xi is apparently uh, has a high threshold for Putin embarrassing him. Well, so the, the media environment in which he operates is different to the media environment that we observe. Certainly. Yes, that's right. He can manage this much more easily. Right. Than a Western politician. PR can. fallout is different. Right. But the question for me is, why do these things? Why elevate Putin? And. So, yeah, it's transactional and stuff like this, but that only gets you so far. Uh, China is going to be located next door to Russia forever, right? And so they've got to deal with, with whoever is in charge in Russia on some level and come to some accommodation with them. They're both nuclear powers, uh, and they're not, and they can't actually pull away from. Russia any more than we can pull away from Mexico, right? right? We're going to be dealing with Mexico forever just because that's where we live. Uh, and so, uh, sure, China has Russia over a barrel, but Russia has leverage over China also. Which brings right? me to my and, second point. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, go, please go right ahead. Uh, the second thing that I was comforted by is uh, remembering the molotov ribbentrop Pact. Right now, I'm not saying that this is analogous. I don't think uh, China is going to ditch this friendship and then invade Russia or something. That, of course, was the uh, non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the USSR that uh, that uh, was signed in 1939 that Nazi Germany then ignored 
about two years later and invaded Russia. But these things don't always last was the other thing I thought about. And world events can transpire that make seemingly, uh, to coin a phrase, axes of evil come apart. I'm, I don't know. And also, um, because it's not a treaty, that, that's more likely to happen here. Sure. But again, uh, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of sort of fact countervailing factors. Uh, again, China and Russia are going to have to deal with each other on some level, no matter what. Right. right? Uh, and on some level, I think Xi can't afford to let Putin fail in Ukraine. Uh, a lot of commentators said uh, it's not that he necessarily needs Putin to win in Ukraine. He, he needs the West to lose. He can't afford to have Putin lose, right? right? Uh, he doesn't want Russia destabilized, for instance, if Putin were to fall from power as a result of this, right? Oh, that would be okay. bad for China, right? And so uh, he can't, he doesn't actually want Putin to go down. Uh, and that, you know, fine. He, uh, you know, Germany violated the pact against the USSR. That's not. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't think. No, that's, that's a, not analogous. You're right. Yeah, uh, and so, uh, and there's other things also. For example, Z uh, went on uh, about how, not just in Ukraine, but he feels that America is trying to encircle China, and he has good reason to think that. Right, just in the past few months, right, there's been uh, United States is expanding its military footprint in the Philippines, in Japan, right? Uh, uh, Joe Sam, Biden, would would they have done that if China hadn't decided to build the world's biggest navy? Maybe not, right? Uh, but the fact is, China is allowed to have a navy, right? I mean, they're a country. They can, um, it, it, sure, I'm just not sure they're allowed to have the biggest one in the world. They are. I mean, I know, <laughs> I know they are, but like, well, then why are you not sure? I mean, you either know that you either know they're allowed, or you're not sure they're allowed, right? Uh, uh, and there, uh, Joe Biden met with uh, Rishi Sunak and uh, Albana, Anthony Albanese, uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, just a week or two ago in San Diego about the the nuclear Trumps. submarine back that uh, that they've got. Uh, between those three nations. So, uh, sure. Uh, uh, and, you know, this is just all part and, that part and parcel of a more hawkish policy towards China on behalf of the United States and, and since Joe Biden took, took over, right? There's the economic aspects, the CHIPS Act and things like this, which, by the way, also has an impact on disrupting the, the supply chains to return to our previous topic, right? Right. Uh, uh, Biden has passed all these different legislative acts that look to change supply chains in this in supply chains in this country. If you're changing supply chains, that disrupts existing supply chains, which will have an impact on inflation. But that was our last topic. So, uh, but it's tied the, together because it does seem like she, on some level, is just kind of betting there won't be the political will for the United States to turn their supply chains away from China. Yeah, and I think he's wrong about that, right? Uh, but that's—I mean, but I hope the, he. I hope the, he is. Well, but the fact is that last year, uh, in spite of everything, 
trade with between the United States and China reached an all time high. Okay, so you know, uh, uh, we'll just have to see how these things work out. The other thing, though, and this is the thing that alarmed me the most, was that Xi said to Putin during this summit that their two countries were driving historical forces that the world hadn't seen in more than a century. Uh, And now, a lot of world leaders say things like this, right? Uh, You know, the historic destiny and stuff like this. But when they do, it always makes me uneasy, right? Uh, Because, you know, it should just be, you know, we're doing our, we're making our very best effort to to help our people, right? Uh, to you know, secure the welfare of our citizens, right? Not we're driving the, the forces of history, and you know, and, and this sort of messianic, uh, you know, destiny, you know, uh, kind of thing that makes me very nervous, right? It's for example, uh, uh, I didn't hear anybody talk about how this. Uh, this uh, meeting between Xi and Putin took place on the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq, right? Uh, And that was the same kind of thing that George W. Bush was saying in the lead up to that war, where freedom is God's plan for humanity, right? And this this same sort of messianic kind of historical destiny stuff, which is, you know, again, enervating for me. It's... it's, uh, it's something I just don't like to hear. Uh, and I thought it was sort of uh, restrained on their part not to bring that up. I don't think they mentioned the the war in Iraq. But it's just like, oh, uh, we're, you know, we're violating other countries' national sovereignty. It's just like, who, you know, who do you think you are? Right now, they're, these are very different cases, right? Uh, but... Uh, you know, I think there's a strong consensus in our country today that the war in Iraq was a dreadful mistake, right? Uh, and people can talk about that openly in our country and come forward and say that. And a lot of people who supported that war have since recanted. Doesn't help, by the way, uh, but they have done so. And there's the freedom to have that debate in our country, and unlike in either of the uh either Xi's country or Putin's country. Um, so we're going to have to see how this plays out. But uh, I think a lot of people were afraid. I was a little apprehensive hearing that it was going to be a three-day meeting. I remember right? you said that. And uh, But Xi did not announce any escalation of, uh, of China helping Russia in the war in Ukraine. And that's good, right? That's a relief. Right. I, you know, I was a little apprehensive about that and it didn't come to pass. Sort of a push, right? In both cases, right? Uh, uh, things haven't actually changed. Uh, and so we're going to have to see how it plays out. And, and so the, 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 the meeting between Xi and Putin ended up being similar to the meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee meeting. (laughs) So that's like, okay, well, yeah, you know, uh, 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 Things could have gotten much worse, and they didn't in both cases. So that's good.